1: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Ian Haney-Lopez, who is the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. Ian, how are you doing today? I'm
0: doing very well. I'm very glad to join you in this conversation.
1: Yeah, the book is great and has gotten a lot of attention. Um, uh, You've had the chance to talk about it elsewhere, and it's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you here in this context. Um, Before we get to the book, maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you've been, where you are now, what's preceded this book, and and then we can get into the actual discussion of the book. So, tell us about yourself.
0: I'm a professor of law at UC Berkeley. I've been there almost 20 years. I teach in the areas of constitutional law and race. Uh, And this is my third book. Um, My first book, White by Law, talked about the way in which law formally defined uh, white identity. Um, my second book, Racism on Trial, talked about Mexican-Americans and the transition uh, to uh, a Chicano or a Brown identity. Uh, uh, and this book is really, in a sense, in line with those. The first book was about whiteness, and the second book, a histor- as it was historically constituted, and the second book was about a community that rejected a white identity in favor of a non-white identity. I think you can understand this book is a very contemporary book about what I would describe as political whiteness, the way whiteness works in society today, uh, to shape how people understand social relations, uh, government, uh, and the structure of society.
1: Yeah, your, your book covers a lot of ground, um, both thematically but also historically. So if we could, let's, let's maybe start before your story even begins. Um, What was the nature of of racial appeals prior to the emergence of of this period of dog whistle politics uh, that you describe in the book? What what precedes this?
0: So I think a a racial narrative has been central to the formation of the United States. Uh, uh, Race was debated. uh, Racial positions were contested. um, But in all of these contexts, race was discussed uh, expressly. Um, What should be the nature of, um, uh, what should be the extent of slavery? To what extent, how should we relate to Native Americans? Um, uh, What's the propriety of um, expanding westward, even though much of that is controlled by Mexico? All of these conversations about the the very nature of the United States were conducted in expressly racial terms, and this sort of racial discourse remains central in politics Right up through the Civil rights movement, what happens with the civil rights movement though, is that there's a, 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 a tidal shift in how Americans, how whites understand the propriety of talking about race and supremacist sorts of language talking about the superior, superiority of whites, talking about the, the, the destiny of whites, that comes to be seen as illegitimate as immoral. And so that sort of racial discourse, Uh, becomes problematic. Um, And now, for for a politician to talk openly about uh, white solidarity or white destiny um, or or the United States as a white country, that would be political suicide. At the same time, however, that sort of discourse didn't simply abruptly end. Instead, it morphed. uh, And it shifted in a coded direction so that Uh, A lot of our politics continues to revolve around racial themes, except that race is is rarely invoked directly. Instead, it's triggered indirectly through terms like welfare queen, um, uh, illegal alien, um, uh, criminals, uh, inner city culture. All of these terms on their surface have nothing to do with race. But underneath, they're trading on racial notions of um, uh, who really belongs here, who contributes, who's hardworking, who's trustworthy, and in contrast, um, uh, who's an outsider, who's a threat, who's dangerous, uh, who's lazy. Right? These are the old racial themes that used to be talked about in the naked language of race, but now are addressed in the coded language of culture and behavior.
1: So near the start of the book, you talk about George Wallace, um... And uh, it's a really kind of interesting, I think, surprising um, political transformation. So Wallace uh, didn't always practice the politics of segregation. And, and you described that he, he really was no friend of the Klan uh, for a portion of his career. So um, w- what were Wallace's politics early in his career and, and what was the epiphany that shifts his strategy and his rhetoric later in his career.
0: Wallace really is, so we should understand Wallace as a consummate politician in the sense that he's got a rough um, idea of uh, how he wants to um, govern and and that that he's actually a a bit of a, um, uh, you know, he's he's concerned with the middle class, concerned with the working person. Um, But more than anything else, he's got a driving urge to win. So, uh, there are a couple of epiphanies for Wallace. The first uh, comes when he, uh, uh, when he initially runs for governor. Um, uh, and when he runs, he runs as a racial moderate. But this is in the wake of the Broker's Board of Education decision in 1954, mandating integration. Uh, the politics uh, around race are really starting to radicalize in the South. Um, and Wallace loses to a racial reactionary. And the night of his uh, concession speech, when he has to uh, go and admit that he he has lost, uh, there is a story in which he turns to some of his supporters uh, and and he looks at them and he says, no other son of a bitch is ever going to out-nigger me again. And what he means is that he recognizes that he lost to somebody who was a fiery racial reactionary and that he sees that if he adopts that strategy... He can win election. And indeed, that's what he does. And so the next time that, that he runs for governor, he runs as a racial firebrand. Um, and it's as this racial firebrand that he wins office, that he's inaugurated, and it's his inaugural address when he says, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. He promises this stand in the schoolhouse door, right? So 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 that's his first epiphany, that he could use race as a racial firebrand to win election. But this is 1962, um, and the civil rights movement is gaining strength, uh, and this sort of language makes George Wallace look like uh, a sort of unrepentant southern bigot. Um, And so there's a second moment when he has yet another epiphany, uh, uh, just a few months later, he actually takes his stand in the schoolhouse door, uh, but when he does so, he doesn't talk about the proud Anglo-Saxon homeland in the South and all that sort of uh, uh, clear white supremacist language. Instead, he starts to talk about um, the power of the state to resist uh, federal intervention and, and the um, overweening power of the federal government. Now then that effect is the same. He's seeking to block uh, school integration. But there's a remarkable transformation and sort of support that Wallace gets. Um, he gets support from all across the country. Uh, and, and Wallace has this second crucial epiphany. Yes, he can continue to win votes uh, by using racial appeals. But um, he can appeal to whites all across the country if he shifts his language slightly, and if he begins to frame racial issues in these coded terms, for instance, states' rights, rather than in the old supremacist language of uh, white superiority. And it's this second epiphany, I think, that has come to shape modern American politics, that there is, in the, in the words of a Republican strategists, political gold to be mined in racial appeals but only if you couch them in coded terms uh, that allows people to deny, perhaps even to themselves, um, that they're reacting to uh, racial triggers. And I think it's that that combination, you can win on race, but you have to use race in a way that's coded and that allows plausible deniability, um, those are the two sort of central lessons of Wallace that I think have shaped modern American politics for the last half century.
1: So thus we have the emergence of this, this dog whistle, and it's practiced by both Republicans and Democrats, though though maybe more so for one party than the other. But but I think you suggest that it's it's um this is not a uh, uh, this is a bipartisan um, uh, tactic. So how does a racial dog whistle work exactly? Who's the target, and what is the intended response of that target? Well,
0: I, so that's a really important question. But before we get there. I want to back up and address this question of of whether dog whistling is bipartisan. Um, I think it's it's really important to understand with respect to dog whistling that there are two central dynamics. One is the use of race to appeal for votes. Um, That's the one that most people focus on. Very interesting, but frankly, not the most important. Much more important is that dog whistling emerges as a way to specifically target the New Deal state. Dog whistling has, um, at least this has been used in the the United States over the last 50 years, a specific, substantive, ideological component. And so here's, here's how it works. People use dog whistles. For example, Reagan would tell a story about uh, people waiting in line to buy hamburger while somebody ahead of them is is using uh, uh, food stamps to buy a T-bone steak. So you can see the racial element, right? The first time Reagan told that story, he told it in terms of uh, some young buck waiting uh, uh, to buy, uh, waiting in the line ahead to buy a T-bone steak with food stamps. Some young buck, clearly a racial term. Um, so you can see the racial component. Uh, this is a story about um, blacks who could work but refuse to work, they'd rather scam the system, they're, they're uh, um, ripping off the system whereas it's whites who are playing by the rules, uh, who are working, who are struggling to make ends meet, who are paying their taxes, uh, who can only afford hamburger. Uh, okay, you can see that, but on top of that, uh, or maybe I should say beneath that, is another story, and that is a demonization of government. It says it's liberal government with its welfare programs um, that is seeking to take money from, uh, take the tax dollars um, of hardworking whites and give it to these lazy, uh, scheming, undeserving minorities. And it's this demonization of government that's, that's a crucial component of dollars of politics. It's using a narrative that says to most whites, The real threat in your life is uh, minorities and liberal government that insists on coddling minorities. It coddles them by giving them welfare money. It coddles them by refusing to crack down on their criminal propensities. Uh, It coddles them by wasting all this money on public education, right? That's the central narrative, is to tell the central threat in your life is minorities and liberal government, and specifically not concentrated wealth. Don't worry about the corporations. Don't worry about um, dynastic concentrations of of wealth. Worry about poor minorities and liberal government. And that's what connects up dog whistle politics and the enormous reversals that we've seen over the last 50 years in terms of a society with relatively high levels of upward mobility and relatively equitable distributions of wealth 50 years ago uh, to a society now in which we have levels of wealth inequality we haven't seen in a hundred years, and, and levels of social mobility that have that have plummeted, right? and and that's the core story. So if that's the core dynamic, then we need to back up and say, so who's really using dog whistling? Um, and I want to insist that the that the, the the people who are most forcefully using dog whistling are. political reactionaries. They are people who are targeting the New Deal state. Yes, that ends up being uh, Republicans, but even within the Republican Party it has been the reactionary elements of the Republican Party and not the sort of moderate Republicans who have been most prone to use dog whistling. Um, The Barry Goldwaters, for example, or the Ronald Reagans, or in contemporary terms, uh, the Tea Party, Um, uh, uh, um, um, agitators, right? They're causing, you you constantly get these reactionary elements dragging the Republican Party further and further to the right, making it more and more hostile to a, a New Deal state that tries to take care of everybody, more and more sympathetic to a system of government that uh, favors the very rich through massive tax cuts and also through giving corporations uh, control over the regulatory state. Democrats, sorry, let me just pick up this last yeah, yeah, please. Democrats Continue. have done this too. Uh, I think in particular Bill Clinton and I think Democrats should be uh, roundly criticized for using dogma's politics. They've done it both to get elected but incidentally they've also had to adopt some of these more reactionary frames and so the Democrats too have shifted to the right. We've seen a big shift in our politics of the last 50 years, rightward. Um, but again, I want to be clear. Yes, you can identify this dynamic among Republicans and Democrats, but the main culprits here are reactionary elements that have really hijacked both parties, um, Republicans more than Democrats, but both parties. Into using race as a way to appeal to voters, but even more destructively for our society, into using race as, as a way to demonize a, a government that's supposed to help most people instead of just the very rich.
1: So, how how strategic is this on the one hand, and how much does this reflect simply sort of the, the euphemistic nature of of discourse and and a um, sort of an, an underlying uh, racism that 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 might exist a, a across a wide swath of the country. Uh, what what would be the argument that this is actually um, thoughtful, purposeful, uh, strategic in nature? And 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 how much of then is is also something that reflects um, kind of the, the deeper culture? Uh, is there a way to distinguish between those two? Well, I think that there is.
0: I think this is, so. Of course, it's not strategic in the sort of uh, sense of. Uh, Uh, Some omniscient cabal that sat down 50 years ago and laid out a long-term strategy plotting every move and every evolution. Of of course it's not that. Um, Nevertheless, it's purposeful, even if in a sort of an incremental way. So from Wallace in 62, Goldwater in 64, uh, Nixon in 72, Reagan in 80, at each different stage you have politicians um, often with ideological commitments, Goldwater, Reagan, who are thinking long and hard about how to to get elected, but also how to convince uh, the voters um, to support policies that frankly are really bad for most voters. That's the strategic element. So they, they look around and they say, what's going to work? And like Wallace, they come to the conclusion that racial appeals are going to work. Do they have some sort of pre-commitment to harming minorities? No, I don't think so. This isn't about harming minorities. This isn't about latent racism. Um, do, do, does a sort of a latent racism in, in culture make a difference? Sure. It's available as a resource. They look around and they say, uh, how can we agitate people? How can we get people to the to the polls? How can we get people to fear government? Let's play up the, the anxiety being generated by the civil rights movement. Let's even go further and create new sorts of fears. Um, uh, let's scope this resentment. And so you get these uh, repeated stories about minorities and crime, about minorities and welfare, about um, surging numbers coming across the southern border, um, about, know more contemporary terms, an Arab-Muslim terrorist threat. I I think that this is a strategic, purposeful, cold, calculating effort to scope, to channel, to direct um, anxieties that exist in the popular culture uh, but which are amplified and fueled by our political culture.
1: The book is just really interesting. Um, I think you can get a flavor for just some of the portions of it that we talked about here, but there's there's a lot more that, that we haven't talked about that is um, worthy of, of uh, a lot of people going out and purchasing and reading uh, the book. What's next for you? Um, you? You mentioned how this sort of fits into, um, uh, fits very closely into the, the previous books that you've published. Is there, a, is there a forthcoming book? Is there a book that you're beginning now? What, what do we have to look forward to from you?
0: I think for right now, I'm going to concentrate on this book. And, and here's what I really want to concentrate on. Uh, there's a way in which the book pulls together a lot of material that tells a historical narrative about what's happened in our politics. But frankly... Um, that history is pretty well known. This book contributes to it by, by pulling it all together and giving it a sort of a coherent narrative structure, but it's already out there. Um, what isn't out there is a sophisticated understanding of how racism has evolved over the last 50 years. Um, there are tremendous successes in the civil rights movement, successes evident in, the, in election and re-election, of an African-American president. We shouldn't gainsay those successes. But at the same time, racism has been evolving. And we simply lack the public vocabulary to understand how that's happened. And and that's, I think, for me, the, the principal contribution of this book, to understand how racism has evolved in a way that makes racism now the central force in structuring our society uh, in a manner that disadvantages almost everybody, but favors the very rich. So I think for the next few years, I'm going to really concentrate on trying to, get, uh, trying to push into public discourse a more sophisticated understanding of how racism has evolved in a way that really hurts everybody of whatever race.
1: Yeah, well, uh, the, the book certainly does that, and, and I think um, uh, a wider reading of it will will certainly contribute to that goal. Uh, Ian's book, Dog-, Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, is published by Oxford University Press this year, 2014. Uh, not only is it very interesting, it has a very powerful cover. I think the uh, whoever designed this cover did a very good job of catch- capturing um, the, uh, the message. And, and uh, so if you see it... Um, Pick it up, buy it, and, and, and please do read it. Ian, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Thanks very much, Heath. It's been a great conversation.